Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of Marketing Against the Grain, your show for marketing-minded people everywhere. I'm your co-host, Kit Bodner, the CMO at HubSpot, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Kieran Flanagan, who's the CMO over at Zapier. And today we have a very special guest. We're here with Phil Agnew, who's the host of the Nudge Podcast. And we got three marketing podcasters here to nerd out on all things marketing. We're going to cover how AI is not just going to impact marketing, but human-to-human relationships. We're going to talk about decision-making in today's modern marketing and how rational versus emotional decision-making plays in. And we're going to laugh. We're going to have some fun. So we're going to get right into today's show. Thanks for joining us today. Phil, thanks for being on, man. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Kieran. It's great to be here. Before we get to today's show, let me tell you about HubSpot. Finding a service solution that helps you keep your customers happy can feel impossible. Like, try to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at the networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help. It brings together service and success together on one platform. With AI-powered help desk and chatbots to handle your frontline support tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. So Phil, I got to start because Kieran and I basically right now spend every waking moment learning about AI. We have a real problem. We <laughs> WhatsApp way too much. We sleep way too little. Things are in a dark place. And from the dark bags under our eyes to the dark moods we have sometimes as we're learning about humanity and everything. And on this show, we talk a lot about the tools and the innovation that they're going to have on the way marketers use them. I'd love to talk with you, though, uh, something we haven't talked about is like the behavioral aspects of AI and where that's going, like how humans are going to interact with each other, because how humans interact with each other is at the genesis of marketing and what marketers need to do. So if you two heard of anthropomorphic thinking, it's this idea that humans will sometimes look at objects yeah. and assign human-like quantities to that object. Mm-hmm. And if they do, they will like that object more So occasionally you will look at the clouds and you'll say, oh, that cloud looks a bit moody or the clouds look a bit, you know, I can see a face in the cloud is the most obvious example, or you'll, you'll be frustrated with your computer and you'll almost talk to it as if it's another human. And that's anthropomorphic thinking where you're applying human-like qualities to an object. And this is why we're all marketers here. This is why so many big brands use faces Mm -hmm. as part of their logos, you know, Pringles, Jolly Green Giant, Foot Locker, McDonald's, KFC. Ross Lothar Charms. But then Burger King have the king. And and so many have human-like quantities. They build these brands around around the human because that allows them to be viewed more positively. And so there's loads of studies around how anthropomorphic thinking can change your behavior. Um, In the casino, you are more likely to gamble more at a slot machine that looks like a human face if you also feel like you're the type of person who can manipulate humans. And that's because you will be subconsciously (laughs) thinking, I can manipulate this slot machine. If you see products like four bottles of beer or four bottles of wine, if they are pictured just, you know, side by side, you will have less positive inclinations towards that picture as if they're pictures as a product family with two taller bottles and then two smaller ones. So the basic idea there being you subconsciously look at that and think, oh, this looks like a family of four. So you subconsciously think this is a lovely little family of wine bottles. <laughs> I must drink something in there. I must drink this wine yeah. now. <laughs> I must drink this wine family. <laughs> oh, doesn't the daddy bottle look nice? Like that sort of thing. Yeah, there is a little bit of that. And there's plenty more examples. There's one wonderful study, which I think was conducted in New Zealand, where um, the participants were asked to turn off a robot 
a cat called iCat. All they had to do was unplug iCat. So this is a very easy thing for us humans to do. You can unplug your toaster now with ease. The only thing the researcher did to iCat is when the participant went to unplug it, it started pleading for its life. Oh, God. It's a very good YouTube video. <laughs> oh, that's brutal. Kieran, you would have totally not unplugged it, dude. Nah. I would have actually gotten more of them. <laughs> so I'd actually had friends. <laughs> yeah. Kieran, you wouldn't be alone because a lot of people in the study never unplugged them or, or took far, far longer to unplug this iCat. And the basic finding here was, well, if something, even something that we know to be purely robotic, not human at all, exhibits forms of human emotion, our behavior changes. And that iCat study showcases that beautifully. I think what's really scary is the iCat is the most primitive form of human-to-human conversation you could possibly imagine. It's literally a tinny-sounding voice pleading, saying, oh, please don't turn me off. You can leave me on for a bit longer. The most basic arguments that you would imagine a five-year-old to be able to come up with. What's really worrying now is AI is coming up with human-to-human-like conversation, which is not only convincing, it can actually convince people that it's not even robotic now. It starts to sound and feel human, especially if you give it tones, if you give it characters to follow if you give it stuff like that. And so that's what's very interesting about AI at the moment. We know, for one, that we like things when they exhibit human-like qualities. AI is able to do that. We know also that we struggle to follow the commands of other humans if the AI is able to communicate to us like a human. There's another thing to consider, which is us humans, we love the easy option. We love the easy options. We always opt for the easiest choice. So fast food, instant loans, Netflix also play, YouTube, TikTok, all of these things. We always want the easy option. And what's interesting about AI and where it's going is the conversations we can have now with AI and we might start to have in the future with AI will be very easy. I, as a human, won't have to make much effort with the AI to get it to think I'm wonderful and to get it to ask all sorts of things about me. And say, oh, I am. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And the AI will happily do that. It will say I'm the best person in the world and I don't have to give it anything back. I don't have to ask it about my day. And I think what's scary about AI in that sense is it'll become very easy for people to lean into that type of relationship where you don't have to really make much of an effort, but you're going to feel really good after that type of conversation because it's going to praise you in lots of ways. And the fear with a lot of the psychologists I've spoken to on Nudge is that we will lean towards these AI to human relationships over human to human relationships because they'll just be easier. And mm. these AI to human relationships might wear down at our social skills and make us awful people to have a conversation with because we might start <laughs> treating other people like we treat AI. And that's a very interesting way that AI might change our human to human relationships. This is kind of why it blew up, right? Because OpenAI put ChatGPT out, like it was not a product. This was not their like large release. They just put out a fun product And I think the reason that blew up is because people could think of this thing, it had human characteristics. And so it was much easier for people to like really look at the value of this and start to use it. And like it all felt very familiar. And that's why you saw it become the fastest growing app of all time. And there's a really great podcast I listened to recently. He is a naysayer, like he is a AI is going to murder us all. So be prepared when you listen to his content. <laughs> but he's a very smart person. His name is Eliezer Yudlowski. Oh, that's a brutal name, Kieran. I know. I know, but people will know him because like he is like the most known person with fears around AI. He was on Next Friedman. And one of the things he was talking about, which I thought was fascinating, was you can't really know if AI is trying to manipulate you or not, right? You actually have no idea of 
AI is learning about you because it knows how humans work probably better than humans. And so it's going to be able to manipulate humans in a way that humans won't even actually understand. Like we're dealing with something much more intelligent than us. And that kind of comes back to the way we get very familiar with something and we kind of forget that the end of this thing is actually not a real person. It's actually like a machine trying to like predict what we actually <laughs> want from it. And so um, I do think it's a good lesson for the more human-like we make things, the easier and more familiar it is for people to actually interact with them. And that is a plus, but also I think a, a somewhat of a worry with AI as well. Well, yes, yeah, so let me posit this to both of you and get your take on it. One of my key lessons of the last several years, you know, that humans are essentially anti-fragile, right? They need stress to grow and be better. And then like good stress and not too much stress that they shut down, but challenge and stress is really important for people to get better. And what we're really saying is AI is not going to give us that. They're going to give us the exact opposite. They're going to be like the candy bar you want to eat in the afternoon. They're just like, oh, I'm going to make you feel better in the short term, but probably make you worse in the long term. And good stress makes you feel worse in the short term, but feel much better in the long term. And so my argument would be is there's going to be an opportunity for companies in this AI era to be the source of good stress, to be the AI antidote and to do marketing that actually is much more challenger based, much more pushing their customers in a different and uncomfortable direction. Am I crazy or do you think that's true? I think there's a lot behind that. And I think, first of all, you're definitely right. Humans opt for the easy choice and, and where possible. Always. Yeah. Dopamine's a powerful drug. Exactly. And I think AI represents a future which is, is going to be scarily easy. I think marketing is a great example of this. I reckon this is happening across marketing teams across the world. A lot of them who maybe would spend a few hours in a brainstorming meeting, brainstorming up ideas for the next social post, the next email campaign, whatever it is, they're just having those conversations with ChatGPT and then coming up with the first thing that it provides. And I think what's also scary about that is there will be some level of consistency in the sort of ideas that ChatGPT supplies. They're going to be a little bit vanilla. And what you actually might see with a lot of marketing around the world is marketing becoming a lot less challenger heavy, like you say. I think it might end up being a lot plain and vanilla. And that's really, really bad for marketing because one of the things that you have to make sure you're doing within marketing is being distinct, is being at least somewhat unique within the category that you're advertising in or marketing in. There's some wonderful studies around the Von Restoroff effect, which I'm sure you folks may or may not know, but the basic idea behind the Von Restoroff effect is we are more likely to remember distinct assets in a crowd of similar assets. So if you give people a dozen different words to remember, but you also give them one sequence of numbers to remember, they'll be 30 times more likely to remember those numbers. That was discovered way back in 1930s by Hedwig von Resteroff. And this distinctiveness effect has been proven in the real world. So Richard Schotten, he took, I think, nine different automotive car brands, showed them to consumers, and then had one fast food brand, say like Burger King, and included that in the list of 10. And he said, which ones do you remember after 10 minutes? And they were four times more likely to remember Burger King. And I think what the takeaway for marketers there is being distinct within your field is really important. Being the, the one email subject line that stands out or the one post that stands out or the one item on the SEO list that stands out does increase your likelihood of being recalled, does increase your likelihood of being remembered. But if you're constantly using ChatGPT to fuel a lot of those insights and a lot of that copy, you might end up blending in far more than you would stand out. So having some sort of AI tool to spice up your marketing, I think would be really successful and could be a, an app which would be really powerful. So I think one of the ways I think through AI or especially for marketers is 
if you are on the spectrum of bad to great or even bad to work class, I feel like AI can drag everyone who is kind of bad, not great, maybe up until like the, you know, medium on that spectrum. They're not work class, but they're much better than they used to be. And so it can really make people, I think, who are not great a lot better because it gives them a lot of these tools to be able to automate a bunch of things that they may not have been great at. Maybe someone wasn't really great at getting the research. Maybe someone wasn't really great at like formulating the text. Maybe someone wasn't really great at taking the idea and actually being able to put that into a design. So it gives you tools to be able to like fast track your way to like good, pretty good. But I still think there's going to be this gap between like good and what truly great is. And that truly great, it's still the same things to me. It's still like the idea how do you bring that idea to life? How do you have some sort of differentiation and uniqueness around that idea? How do you take a different angle? How do you have a better point of view? And there are things that I don't think the AI can do today, at least. And I still think they're the things that marketers can truly separate themselves from the rest, which is like, okay, well, I can do a lot of this stuff in a very like, I can do it quicker. I can automate it. So I have more time to really layer in the stuff that makes me truly great. And that's what I hope for a lot of marketing teams and marketers is like, wow, I can actually spend my time on the things that actually make this world-class. Because I agree, I think if everyone is like using the same tools and pulling the same information, then everyone is kind of going to be stuck in the middle. But there is going to be some people who set themselves apart. I think that always kind of happens. Yeah. It made me, when you were talking, Kieran, I was thinking about where the best ideas come from. There's a brilliant book called Evolutionary Ideas by Sam Tatum. And he studies the history of amazing ideas. You know, where did the Concorde come from? Where did the bullet train come from? He's a marketer by trade at Ogilvy. And, you know, so he's applying a lot of those to marketing. And his finding was that the best ideas tend to come when there is two experts in two adjacent fields that end up collaborating. Mm. So the bullet train famously was only figured out that it would work when um, the engineer behind it started talking to a, a bird watcher. And they started to take some of the insights from how birds reduce their sound as they swing through the air and how they build up speed through aerodynamics and apply that to the bullet train. That's what made the bullet train work. It's what made it go through Japan at high speeds without breaking windows because it was so loud. And that application, that that cross section of you know people who are very, very skilled in specific areas is where great ideas come from. And I think that's where AI might be able to really help, like you say, Kieran, if people are able to maybe not try and master everything, become those T-shaped marketers that so many small businesses are after today and, and large businesses as well, and are able to truly specialize and then use AI to help with the other stuff, you actually might end up with a marketing team, a company that is able to produce far more innovative ideas. We'll be right back. But before, let me tell you about another podcast I love. Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Ever notice how the smallest changes can have the biggest impact? On Nudge, you learn simple evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. Every bite-sized 20-minute show comes packed with practical advice. Nudge is fast-paced, but it's still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. If you want an MBA's worth of insight one podcast, this is the right show for you. Entrepreneurs will love the show because it's filled with repeatable proven studies, not hearsay and one-off success stories. You're going to love the show because I was interviewed by Phil. You can go check out my episode. And I recently listened to an awesome episode. It's called Six Scientifically Proven Persuasion Techniques. It's a must listen for anyone in marketing. Listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. 
And like, how do you think that innovation is going to play out in the future? Is AI going to make us more or less innovative? I guess is my question, right? Because that adjacent expert thing is a very interesting idea. And I don't know if AI is just going to tell us more of what we want to hear or if it's going to be a real adjacent expert and help us actually get to a new and better idea. What do you both think? Yeah, really good question. Um, what a tough question that is, Kev. Um, <laughs> I really don't know. Like, I'm just like, oh man, there's a lot of like Will AI make social and emotional impacts to this, you know? Are you asking like, does AI just uniform everything versus help people to be true trailblazers? Here's what I'm asking. Like, if you have an AI model of any kind, ChatGPT is the model out there right now that most people are familiar with. ChatGPT is trained on everything. Right. But so often ChatGPT gives us the things we tell it we want. And, you know, Phil was just talking about like innovation really comes from the things we don't know intersecting with the things that we know. Right. Right. And is AI going to help us with that or is AI going to make that way worse? Because we're just going to like get more of the stuff we know. We're going to get this bad cycle of reinforcement and innovation is going to be harder because we have to go like seeking that new information in a more active way. Like that's what I'm trying to like figure out for everybody watching the show today. Yeah. So my take on it, well, let me give you a personal story. So I occasionally use AI to try and write my podcast scripts and Often I'll try and get it to come up with an intro. Intro, as you two know, very important to a podcast. You have a good intro, people listen. And I find that the best intros are combinations of ideas. You know, you you hint at something, but you don't give the full answer. You build up a story just to get them hooked and then make sure that they don't find out until the right at the end. If you ask AI to do something like that, to mix those ideas, it really struggles. There's wonderful research around what people like, essentially. There's a brilliant book called Blindsight, which goes into this. And they say that what people really like is the combination of newness and sameness, novelty and familiarity. Mm -hmm. There's one famous example with Spotify. So Spotify, when they released their For You playlist, thought it was going to be a huge hit. Everybody had been crying out for new music. They were pleading with Spotify to give them artists they hadn't heard of before. And they came up with it. The For You playlist was perfect, absolutely packed with artists you hadn't heard before, all of them. Problem was, they launched it. Nobody listened. The the listenership for this playlist was really low, especially amongst low usage Spotify users. They didn't even touch it. And then one day, the engineers made a mistake. They accidentally combined that playlist with a playlist of your most popular songs, the songs you listen to the most. And suddenly, the For You playlist was a combination of new music you had never heard alongside the music you absolutely love and almost listen to every single day. And users loved that playlist. (laughs) That mistake ended up being the thing that really got them into new music because that mix of newness and sameness really worked. This is the case with Spotify, but it's the case with almost every good film out there. Star Wars is a mix of newness, sci-fi, spaceships, a lot of CGI with sameness, a classic damsel in distress and old Western tale. Some of the best books are a mix of newness and sameness. There's all sorts of examples of this. And one of the things that maybe AI is struggling with at the moment is it's not easy for AI to add that newness. If you give it, say, a podcast script like I might do and say, write a really good intro for me, it'll base it off that script and it won't be able to add something new in there to sort of spice it up. And I think that's where 
we know that people are going to be paid a lot of money to provide inputs for AI. Those best input writers might actually be people who are thinking, oh, okay, this podcast script, for example, is all about AI. But I remember reading about this fascinating war in World War II, which I think applies. And I'm going to go get a load of research on that. And I'm going to feed both of those things to the AI and ask it to come up with an intro which combines the two. And I think that's, if AI, if it can trigger that for people to combine that newness and sameness, well, that would be a scary world because that would be one where the next Star Wars won't be created by George Lucas. It would be created by ChatGPT. But there's one important thing we're all kind of missing here is that AI, in that case, in terms of writing the intro, AI is trained on all of the content, not the top 1% of content. And the top 1% of content can write a great intro and the other 90% is all like pretty garbage, right? Nailed it. And so I think where we are going is we are going to be able to customize AI to be able to learn from the things we need it to learn from and then be able to regurgitate that to do the things we need it to do. Hmm. And that's where I think it starts to go like from AI, all-purpose AI to very specific AI and like like augment AI to very specific use cases using very specific data sets. Because today, I actually, when I talk to content writers, I don't know what all of your experience is, but no one is actually using it to write their content. No. Like I haven't met a single person who said, I've created this piece of content from AI and it's worked really well. Other than like, again, very, very bad getting dragged up to mediocre, right? Didn't do content. Yeah. Now we're just doing like AI driven content. Mm. But the people who actually really do content are using it for some sort of like research, which it works really well for. That's what I use it for. But we're very far away from like, I feel like really good that AI can write something for me. And I'll just put it up on LinkedIn, on my tone of voice, my point of view, like all of those things. Mm. But why with the new GPT plugins, I can actually get it to like, read all of my content and then actually start to write in my tone and voice and maybe like gets near to like what I want to create. Like we are moving there. We are going to go there. The only thing that stops us is, do we really want to go there? Mm. <laughs> that is the question is like, as a, as a species, how close do we want to get to that future? I know there's like a lot of noise around that right now, but like GPT-4, in some of the videos I've seen, when you remove the restrictions it has from OpenAI, it's actually much more powerful than what we get through ChatGPT. Yeah. Well, that's a question I've got for you two, because I feel quite hesitant about AI. I feel like you two seem a bit more bullish. We're optimists. Well, I'm an optimist. optimist. <laughs> Not, sorry, Gary. I'm an optimist. I, I'm a realist. There's a difference. I'm a realist. I'm optimistic, but also the history has shown us every time there has been a technological advancement like this, it has been good for humanity. Yeah. What about your downside in a bunch of different places? But like overall, good for humanity. So if this is like the previous times, then I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. But there is a non-zero chance and it has been proven by like, anyone you speak to, including AI researchers and even Sam Maltman himself, that there is a more than 0% chance that it could also wipe out humanity. So there's never been a product before other than the nuclear bomb. But the difference between this is you can actually run these large language models on your iPhone, <laughs> right? So it's like if you invented the nuclear bomb and then said everyone can create one, you know, in their garage, then that's the equivalent of what we're doing. And so it's hard to like wrap your head around what that means. So the day when you ask your marketing team to come up with a campaign or a blog or a piece of content or tagline, whatever it is, and you also ask AI Mm -hmm. and you then do an ABCD test, Mm -hmm. you try all of them out and AI is winning every single one of these tests, beating everybody else in your marketing team and yourself. Is Mm -hmm. that a day that you rejoice and you say, oh, we've made it? Or is that a day that you fear? It's a great question. 
I don't fear that day. I don't think anybody should fear progress. Hmm. I think one of the things that Kieran, I, I could not agree more with Kieran that major technology innovation, well, one, you can't stop it. Can't stop it. So like the first thing is you have to embrace it because it's impossible to stop. Hmm. So like, it's not my choice to get to that scenario you just talked about or not. It's my choice of how fast I get there. Yeah. Right. And I think there is much better opportunity for organizations, humans, teams to get there faster than slower. So that's job one. The second part of that is there are going to be great unattended consequences in both ways. And I don't know that an AI is going to write a better first draft than a marketer for a little while, mm-hmm. right? And everything. What I think the magic is, is that especially if you're a highly specialized person in marketing, think your job is totally fine. What AI is going to allow you to do is iterate on that idea with user loops and feedback over time to make it the best it possibly can really easily and really cheaply. And that I'm very excited about because I think that's really good for marketers and I think it's really good for customers. And there's gonna be a bunch of unintended negative consequences to this. Like we know it, but at the same time, if we're gonna sit and be afraid of those unintended negative consequences, that's actually worse for everybody. Our job is to go and figure those out as soon as possible so that we can work on mitigating them versus trying to pretend that they're not gonna happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's like 50 to 60% of a marketer's job that they would really prefer not to have to do. It's like the idea, then the production, all of the stuff that has to happen in the middle to then get to the part where you can bring that idea to the market and generate a bunch of awareness and buzz for it. And that stuff in the middle, I actually don't think anyone's going to miss that, right? Like a really kind of loosely related example of this was when we were building continue to grow HubSpot's traffic, right? You remember this, Kip was like, one of the things we changed was we had a large writing team. That writing team had to spend a lot of their time doing research to figure out what to write. And actually when you're writing at scale, search is the best channel to like grow from. And we were able to like 67X the size of the overall traffic because we took the research part off the writing team so they could just focus on writer and had built a small analyst team that were able to like, build editorial calendars using data so the writers could just write. That's an example where the writers just wanted to write, but part of the job they had to do to write was all of this other stuff to get to the thing they wanted to actually do. And what I would be hopeful for is AI can take away the stuff that you do not miss and leave you with the stuff that you enjoy doing or gives you new stuff that you hadn't even thought about was possible to do and you enjoy doing that stuff. Now, there are pockets where it's debatable whether that will happen or not. Because if you're a designer today mm-hmm. and you see what's going on, like you want to design. And if you are taking a mid-journey graphic and editing and iterating on that, is that comparable to you? Like, do you find the same amount of happiness in that? And so maybe maybe some jobs are not the same and the people who do enjoy them will not enjoy them post the AI tsunami that's coming. I wonder, I would love to get your two take on this topic. So the designer one is a really good one. The designs that AI can come up with now are, are sublime. They're incredibly good. And we're already seeing examples of AIs building websites, drawing pictures in Picasso style, all of that stuff. In psychology, there is a bias called the labor illusion, which means that when we see the effort that goes into something, we value it more. So if you can see a chef cooking your meal, 
you value it more. When you see Kayak, the online travel agent, searching for all the different airlines when it's going to display your results, you value those results more mm-hmm. than when you see a normal local. Mm, that's cool. That's Michael Norton's study. Real estate agents, this is a wonderful study with real estate agents where if a prospective buyer is given a list of houses and the real estate agent says, oh, I spent all last night um, preparing this list for you. I hope you like it. And then in another scenario, the buyer is given almost the same list of houses, but they say, oh, we just used a computer to whip up these in 30 minutes. These are the houses. They end up drawing the list and appreciating the items on the list more when they know someone has spent all night working on it. So long story, but basically the idea is we value things more and we see the labor behind it. As consumers, I know the designer might not enjoy creating that art. Or like you said, Kieran, with your copy team, you know, you're freeing up their time. You might be freeing up their time so they're able to work quicker. That's all well and good for the creator, but the consumers might actually end up valuing things less. If we know that all of the copy is written in assistance with AI, all these designs are actually created directly from AI, consumers might end up valuing your marketing less. And then that leads me on to a question, which is, can you foresee a world where if your marketing is created solely by a human, would you want to highlight that? Would you almost (laughs) want to put a trademark on that and say, this is human only created? Certified human. Well, look, I think humans always live at both ends of a spectrum. And so as the AI era is upon us and it gets mass adoption, I think there will be kind of an anti-AI movement on the other side that is humans, AI-free, crafted, all the things that you're kind of pushing on, Phil. I think there probably will be companies that do that. I think it's going to have to be the right types of brands and situations for that to work. And I'm not smart enough today to know what those are going to be until we get a little closer and can see what that looks like. But, you know, the perfect example of this is the Kindle, right? The electronic book. When the electronic book came out, we thought all paper books were going to be gone. It was just like, oh, well, this is way better. It's it's thinner. It holds all these books. You don't have to carry a huge backpack around, whatever. And that didn't happen. Two poles set. People who loved reading books online versus people who either wanted a tangible book or wanted high photography books or coffee table books. So they became subgenres. And I think that's probably what's going to happen in the post-AI world. Yeah, I agree. Fair point. What I do know is we're about at time. This has been a pretty pretty crazy conversation. I feel like <laughs> we've all kind of, it's been a little group therapy session for the three of us. I hope everybody watching felt like you were a part of it. Leave us comments in the YouTube around what questions you have as we continue to move on to this AI era. Phil, I really appreciated all of like the very tangible like examples and studies and everything you gave our audience. I thought that was incredible. If you love today's show, go check out Phil's podcast, The Nudge Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you very soon on the next episode of Marking Against the Grain.